Hello, beautiful people. This is Venerable Tequang Tree on Dharma Tree, and you're listening to Ask Monk. So today we're going to answer the question, what is Buddhist prayer? Or do Buddhists pray? And if so, what exactly are we praying for? Or who are we praying to? So we get a lot of these questions, especially those new coming to a temple or to a service. And we see lots of chanting, lots of rituals going on, lots of bowing, lots of invoking the Buddhas and the Bodhisattva's names and all these other things that people have probably never heard of and just wondering what everything is. So this is where I'm going to answer those questions, hopefully. But in Buddhism, there is prayer. However, in Buddhist prayer, it is a little different than your than your traditional Christian, Catholic, Jewish prayer, right? Because in those uh, theistic religions, we are praying to God or to the saints or to Jesus or, or to whomever, kind of requesting something of some sort, right? Um, whether it be health or wealth or prosperity or good luck or this new job or the relationship works out, whatever it may be, right? There's always a request. There's almost like a demand uh, in a sense. But in Buddhism, even though we technically do quote unquote pray, um, the prayer, the 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 goal of prayer is slightly different. And so when we use the word prayer in Buddhism, which isn't really used very commonly or used often, um, instead we just use the word chanting because our prayer comes in the form of the chants that you will typically see in Buddhist services. But in Buddhism, our prayer is more or less a self-reminder to ourselves about what we're praying for. For example, if we were to pray to Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, right? Avalokiteshvara is the embodiment of great compassion and great loving kindness. And so even though we may pray to Avalokiteshvara, what we are actually doing in the sense is trying to remind ourselves of the qualities that Avalokiteshvara holds. We are essentially wanting to embody those qualities, to develop those characteristics of loving kindness, loving compassion that Bodhi, the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara has onto ourselves. And so we're really just trying to remind ourselves that we are wanting to be a replica of some sort, uh, like Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva. And so if we're praying or invoking Avalokiteshvara's uh, name or chanting the sutra or whatever it may be, we're really just trying to embody, we're trying to develop, we're, we're trying to hone those characteristics, those skills, those attributes that Avalokiteshvara has into ourselves. Because essentially what we're trying to do in Buddhist practice, right, the whole goal of life in general, not in just in Buddhism, the whole goal of life is to be happy. And in order to be happy, we have to have a the right mind, right? We have to have that right view, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right? Everything that's in the Eightfold Path. 
that is the blueprint. That is the way that we need to live our lives in order to be happy. And we become happy by practicing that morality, by practicing that wisdom, by practicing that concentration. Those are the three categories, the three characteristics of the evil path that will allow us to live a life that is pretty not stressful, but <laughs> less stressful, and less chaotic, and be able to really see things as they are, to accept things as they are for what they are and how they are. And when we're able to accomplish that and see that through our right thinking, through our right intention, through our right view and speech and action and everything else, then when we have that total acceptance, that total light that we see when we see the truth of things, it's it's very liberating. And that is what we are trying to go after. But that liberation is very momentary. It's very temporary. It's very quick. Sometimes when we're meditating or if we're chanting or if we're doing something that's even mundane like cleaning or, or folding laundry, there can be moments of enlightenment there. There can be small glimpses of liberation. It is the moments where our mind has this total clarity, where we're able to really see things for what they are in that moment, right? And so those little moments, those little sparks, technically are alignment, is alignment, is liberation. But again, it's very temporary, it's very, very quick. And so our goal in our practice of Buddhism is to practice the Eightfold Path to be happy, to live with morality, with wisdom and concentration. That way, those small moments of, uh, of enlightenment, of liberation, will start to extend, will start to be longer and longer and longer until it's eventually permanent, right? Until we attain full liberation, Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. And when that happens, then we are saints, we're, are, we are arhats, we're bodhisattvas, and one day we'll be Buddhas. So when we are practicing Buddhism, when we are chanting, when we are uh, praying, we are really just trying to establish those characteristics, establish those skills, establish those benefits that these bodhisattvas and the Buddhas have so that we can use those skills, use those characteristics and develop them within our own life. So when you go to a temple and you'll see, you know, the, the monastics and members bowing to the Buddha as another example. Now, of course, bowing is pretty common in every world religion in some way, shape or form, right? But in Buddhism, just like with prayer, it's not in a way or form of worship necessarily. We are bowing in order to show gratitude, to show humility toward the Buddha that he was able to bring us his teachings to develop the Dharma as we know it and to practice those. And so when we're bowing to the Buddha or to the Bodhisattvas, we are, again, we're just showing that gratitude, showing that humility toward that Buddha or the Bodhisattva, and trying to embody those skills, those characteristics of that Buddha or Bodhisattva within ourselves. Because what does the Buddha represent, essentially? The Buddha 
represents enlightenment. He represents complete compassion, generosity, patience, morality, concentration, wisdom, right? All these wonderful, beautiful characteristics and, and ideals that we want to hone and develop within ourselves. And so when we're bowing to the Buddha or to the Bodhisattva, whether it's a statue, whether it's an image, or even if it's just, if you're visualizing a Buddha Bodhisattva, works just as well. You don't have to have a physical form of the Buddha or the Bodhisattvas or of, or of anything. Because even if you were to go into a temple and there would be zero statues of any Buddhas or Bodhisattvas, any, it would be zero imagery of anything but it can still be a temple. The imagery, the symbolism, the iconography of things does not make it Buddhist or non-Buddhist, right? It is just how you are able to see, comprehend, and understand things, and how you're able to develop them within yourself. And so when we walk walk into the temple, typically, traditionally, we do a half bow as we walk in to show gratitude to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, the three jewels. And so when we are in the midst of chanting or meditation or prayer or whatever we're doing, we're not just reading the words of the sutra or of the discourse. We're not just reading some words that mean nothing. These words have so much potential. They have so much power. We already know how powerful words can be. Words can, and language in general, can destroy people, can help people, can liberate people, can turn uh, chaotic things into something beautiful or something beautiful into something ugly. Words have so much meaning to them. So when we are chanting the sutras or the discourses or the mantras or whatever it is, we are not just reading them superficially. Of course, the first few times that we read something, especially if you're new to the service or to the temple or to the tradition or whatever it may be, it will take a few times to just read it superficially just to kind of get accustomed and used to what you're reading. But eventually, as you start to practice more regularly and attend uh, regular services or classes or whatever it may be, as you start to recite and chant those sutras, now it's the time to start to really contemplate and dig deeper into the words that you're reading. That way it's not just superficial. Because if you continue to just chant it and read it superficially, there's no value gaining there. There's no um, knowledge being contemplated or, or, or being discovered, right? True wisdom, true insight comes from contemplation of the sutras that we read and chant and study. And so after a while, after we get used to whatever we're reading or chanting, we want to really start to, if you can, memorize what you're chanting. For example, in our Sunday services, our, our, our general chant is fairly short, at least to me. Um, it's about 15 to 20 minutes maybe of chanting in total. And it's nothing too outrageous or too long, right? There's smaller, there's, you know, there's small sections and medium sections. I think the largest piece that we chant during our regular service is maybe the Compassion Mantra and the Heart Sutra of Prajnaparamitta. Those may just be the longest sections, but they're also very easy to learn and memorize. 
That way, after a while, if you do end up being able to memorize them, then it's even easier to really be able to sit, to contemplate, to really kind of uh, simmer the words in your mind so that they really stick. And once they're able to stick and they're there, then it becomes a little bit easier to start to contemplate, to start to really start to um, dig deeper into the meaning of the sutra, into the words. Because a lot of the sutras, if you read it superficially, it may seem either very basic or very um, wordy or doesn't make sense or may sound like mythical. You know, there's some sutras where, like in the Lotus Sutra or even the Amitabha Sutra, there's all these vast and crazy imagery that seem very mythological, very mystical, very out of this world, right? And whether you believe that to be true in the very direct sense of those words, or if you're like me, they are, I believe that they are just symbolisms. They're just a way to help the reader, to help the practitioner to visualize these Buddha lands in a world where it is not very Buddha landy. <laughs> So in our regular Saha world, right, in the world that we live in, there's obviously places that are absolutely gorgeous, that is absolutely mind-blowing, that seems that seem very unreal, that seem out of this world almost, right? That we just kind of imagine that such beautiful places exist. On the other hand, there are places that look like the gates of hell, right? <laughs> or hell itself. And so there's a lot of beauty and chaos there's ugliness and dryness and wetness and all these dualities in our world but the one of the opportunities that the buddha has given us to practice with and to use is to be able to see that beauty through all the chaos that is the world that we live in and so even though the saha world is shakyamuni buddha's pure land in a sense it is not always beautiful to us, but through the eyes of the Buddha, because he is fully enlightened, he has no judgment, he has no bias, he has no perception of beauty and ugliness or right and wrong, he's able to see that beautiful Buddha field, beautiful Buddha land through his eyes, regardless of where and what he sees. And so we want to practice doing the same thing. We are very habitual beings, and so we uh, very automatically start to judge, we start to compare, we start to create biases and discriminations of things, and that is definitely not helping us to see the Buddha land, the Buddha field that is the world that we live in. And so as we start to pray and chant and practice, and really start to absorb the words that we're chanting and reading and studying and be able to see the world as it is for what it is, which essentially is just, it is what it is, right? It's beautiful, whether <laughs> it's beautiful to you or not, it is just your perception. It is your point of view, right? And that's why it's called a point of view because every angle, or every different angle or point that you look at something, everyone's going to have a different view of it. Everyone's going to have a different feeling, a different perception of 
the same thing that everyone's looking at. And so we are trying to escape that habit that we have, escape the habit of automatically judging things, automatically comparing others to ourselves or to what others have compared to what we have or don't have. And if we start to get rid of these things, then it's just so much easier to be free. There's, it's so much easier for us to just live life as it is for what it is without having to want so many desires, without having to want so many things that we don't have or wish that we had. Instead, we're able to just be happy and free and um, enlightened, in a sense, with what we have and where we are. Because in right in, in this very moment, we all have everything that we would ever need to become enlightened. In this very moment, we have everything that we need to become enlightened. And when I say that, that means that regardless of who you are, regardless of what you know, regardless of your education, your background, your upbringing, your society, your culture, whatever it is, you already have every tool you need to become enlightened. That just means that we don't need this, all these externalities in life that we believe would bring us happiness, right? One of the most, one of the biggest topics in Buddhism is about impermanence. And we see impermanence on a daily basis, but we don't really see it in a sense where it's where it's uh, where it's changing our mind or changing our mindset of how we see things we know impermanence is there on a very superficial level right we know that once we eat our food and it's gone that's gone right it was there and now it's not there it's impermanent we know that our pets won't last you know forever they may last for a few years 10 15 20 years and they pass away our loved ones our friends our family they too will get old they will age get sick and die and so we know that impermanence is available we know impermanence is there but we don't always accept impermanence and because we don't accept impermanence, we're always ex- we're always going after these externalities that will that we think will bring us happiness, whether it's a nice car, a fancy house, big house, multiple houses, vacations, fancy job, fancy title. You know, we just want things. We believe these things will bring us happiness, and sometimes they will. Sometimes they will bring you happiness. And it'll last maybe a few hours, a few days, a few years even. But eventually, that, um, that, that, that kind of a um, initial excitement that you got from it won't last forever, right? The honeymoon phase that you have will not last forever. And because of that, right, because it doesn't last forever, we're just going to seek more things to bring us back that or those feelings of of joy and excitement that we had before and once it dissipates and goes away then we're going after more stuff and we just go after more and more and more and we're, we're just never full and because we're never full and because we don't accept that we will never be full with all these external stuff that we think will bring us happiness we will continue to suffer until we're able to actually see things for what they are which is that everything's impermanent 
everything will not last forever, whatever you believe will bring you happiness outside of yourself will never satisfy you completely. And you're going to continue to go after more and more things. And so as soon as we're able to stop and to think and to contemplate and to really go through that cycle of what we believe brings us happiness or doesn't bring us happiness and accept those challenges, accept those, the, the false perceptions that we have of what will or could bring us happiness and, 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 and figuring out that it really doesn't bring us happiness. <laughs> I think I went way off topic here, but the point is, is when we are praying, for instance, I'm just going to continue using the word prayer. If we're praying to Avalokiteshvara and we are wondering why we're praying to Avalokiteshvara, we have to remember what does Avalokiteshvara in the Buddhist sense and most Mahayana traditions, what does Avalokiteshvara represent? He, she represents compassion, loving kindness, understanding, uh, patience, generosity, humility, right? All these great, beautiful qualities. And so when we're praying, quote unquote, um, or chanting about Avalokiteshvara, we are just envisioning, embodying those characteristics, those beautiful, per perfect characteristics that Avalokiteshvara has into ourselves, onto ourselves. That way, when we go out in the world, it'll, the more you continue to pray or to chant, the more that those characteristics get stuck in your mind. That way, when we're out in the world and we're doing something or when we're, at, we're interacting with people, we, if we're in a difficult situation, for instance, if we're mindful enough and aware of what is happening, then as the argument's happening, you can recall the quality of deep listening that Avalokiteshvara has. You can recall the quality of understanding, the quality of loving kindness. That way, as people are arguing, arguing with you, you can bring up those characteristics that you're trying to build within yourself and use them to your advantage. And when we're able to use them for your advantage, then it's much easier to stay calm, to not retaliate in, with, with negativity or unwholesomeness. And you're able to really assess and work toward the situation in a very applicable way and manner. That way we're not retaliating in the same way or the same energy that the person is giving us. Right? They're yelling at us, they're cursing at us, they're maybe trying to even fight you or whatever it is. If we're mindful enough and aware enough and recall those characteristics and qualities of, of, of Avalokiteshvara and use them and embody them within ourselves, then we become Avalokiteshvara in that moment. And then we become bodhisattvas. We become people that are or beings that are able to not just help ourselves, but then we're able to help the other person. A lot of times when people are arguing, whether it comes out of nowhere or something may have triggered them, a lot of times people just want to vent. They just want to kind of just shout out and do whatever they feel like needs to be done in order for them to feel better. And so we don't always know what people are going through. We don't know what's in their mind. And since we can't read their mind, we don't know what they're going through. We don't know what suffering or what trauma they may have. And so if we react violently or react in the same way that they are reacting toward us, 
we're not helping. We're just fueling that anxiety that they have. We're just fueling the negativity and the anger and the unwholesomeness and the trauma and the distress that they have. And so if we want to stop fueling that, we have to instead replace it with something else. And so when we replace it, that fuel, that fire with compassion and love and understanding and deep listening instead, then we become bodhisattvas ourselves and we can then actually help that person. And sometimes it really, and, we, and sometimes we can just help that person by just staying quiet, by listening, by smiling at them, by asking them, by asking them if they were okay or if they need something, right? It doesn't have to be something always big. It doesn't have to be something that's grand. We don't have to go above and beyond every single time to help people. Sometimes it's a simple act of just listening. Sometimes it's a simple act of just being there for them to be the person they need to vent to and to be able to just listen without responding and 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 without trying to influence them in a way that will not help them. And sometimes people who are venting to us really just want to vent so that they can hear the frustration or the anxiety or the distress that they have out loud. And if we are there just to listen and to be there for them, a lot of times they will figure out what they have to do on their own because they hear themselves out loud as they're venting. But if we're there, if we're arguing back or we're trying to retaliate or we're trying to butt in or to whatever it may be, right, as they're talking to us, then we close that, that, that um, flow of, 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 of venting of, that that person is going through. And we lose the ability, we lose the moment to be able to actually help them. Okay, I'm going to stop because I went over topic probably the majority of this podcast, but I hope I answered the question of do Buddhists pray? And so to conclude, yes, Buddhists pray, but it is not a, it is not a prayer that we may traditionally see or understand in Abrahamic religions, right? And so in Buddhism, when we do pray, we're not asking for something, right? We're not asking the Bodhisattvas or the Buddha for good luck or for, um, to help us find money or get money or to get rich or to have that new house that we really want or that new job we really want or that the relationship will last. That's not the type of prayer we do because the Bodhisattvas and the Buddhas, they're not wish fulfillers they don't care about our wishes and about our wants and needs they are not there to grant you wishes they're not genies right they are there as symbolic beings that have special characteristics um that they that they are known for known by and so when we're praying to these different buddhas or bodhisattvas we're really just extracting and cultivating those qualities and skills and characteristics that they possess into ourselves so that we can use those and hone those skills to become perfect so that we can then go out into the world and act as bodhisattvas and help them, help other people as well. So that is it. I'm going to stop talking there. 
Thank you for listening. Namo Shakyamuni Buddha.